Welcome to Wind Up Weekly. I'm Matthew Gone. And I'm Katie Canfield. And we're here to share the week's news and wine. This week on Wind Up Weekly, California's Reese Vineyards fined $3.7 million for destroying wetlands. Blue Wine investigated in Corsica. California winery sues New York distributor for accusing it of selling wines affected by smoke taint. And as ever, our Wine of the Week. This week, Katie, you attended a conference on um, something not, not everyone finds fascinating, but you you were really interested in what you learned there. That's right, packaging. And I would argue that it's very important for any wine business to consider because that's what makes you money. Ah, money. Now we're talking. So how can you make money out of packaging? Well, let's talk about the conference. So it's a Wines and Vines Packaging Conference, sixth annual in Yontville, California. And one session stood out to me, uh, the brand development for private labels and bulk wine. Private labels, what are they exactly? Private label is not your traditional brand. Rather than the supplier making the wine and selling it under their own label, the supplier sells the juice to another entity, such as a retailer or restaurant who slaps their own label on it. It's a great way for retailers to make extra margin, as buying wine in bulk is much cheaper, and they can sell to the consumer at a more competitive price point. So it's putting your own label on the wine and and selling it, but someone else is making it for you. Exactly. Hmm. I remember this from the UK. Most supermarkets have their own labels, and they make quite a bit of money from those. Also, the Wine Society, which is an online um, retailer uh, selling really good wine at good prices, they also have their own label, and they're from regions all around the world. So it really presents to the consumer quite a broad range of um, options at good prices. Right, and the game is big, right? There's all kinds of private labels and all retailers of all different shapes and sizes that are playing in this game. And now in the US, it's a 17% share value of the market, whereas 10 years ago, it was only five. So that's quite a change. And it would seem that the US is doing what the UK have been doing for quite a long time. So really developing and changing. Well, we are a younger country. The takeaways for me were came from Mark Gallo, a VP of marketing at Trinkero, and he said that you know you can't compete with something if you don't know what it is, and that is something the private label is something that we all must acknowledge uh, in the industry, and I think a lot of wineries don't understand it and therefore aren't able to know what their competitor is. Well, I think the assumption is that a winery is authentic, and therefore the consumer will go for that. But private labels can seem authentic as well, can't they? I mean, how can they present themselves as being original or unique to the consumer? Well, that's where Cynthia Sterling chimed in. So she's creative director for Affinity Creative Group based in California. And she really stressed that to build a private label, which she calls a private brand, saying that label doesn't really, uh, isn't sufficient in describing what this is anymore, um, that it requires more thinking today, just as much as any branding or redesign, it requires strategy. So if people don't invest in the designer of the label, for example, then they're out of luck. I mean, if you spend the money, then eventually it will pay for itself with price support because a good label demands a premium, also builds longevity for the brand and drives loyalty with the customer. Would you ever buy a wine solely on its label, Katie? I do so every week. I confess, likewise. 
a label just draws you in and attaches you to the product and if the wine's good you'll come back for more. Also this week uh, we went to a small event in Berkeley in California to taste some Washington wine and some Washington food or prepared by a Washington chef as a glass blowers. Yes, glassy baby. Glassy baby and it's an unusual um, situation. The factory was quite large and quite warm but most people got to uh, practice making some glass product products. Oh yeah, I got to make a paperweight. I actually completely forgot to do this because I was too busy tasting the wine and eating the food, which was very tasty. And a couple, only a couple of producers, so it's quite a low-key, intimate event. Yep, Waters and Dama. Yeah, and my favourite wine, I don't know about you, Katie, but was actually a rosé. And I don't drink rosé that often, but this is a very tasty rosé. And this is from the Dama producer. Both of them are Walla Walla producers, and they've been friends for 20 years, highlighting the intimacy of the Washington wine scene. And now on with the news. Reese Vineyards of California has been fined $3.7 million for multiple violations of the Federal Clean Water Act while building a 12.5 hectare or 20 acre vineyard in Mendocino County. In establishing the vineyard, a 2,148 foot or 655 meter stream was buried while a small portion of wetlands were destroyed. This work started in 2015 when California was at the height of a three-year drought and water access remains a significant issue in the state. Over half of the fine will be contributed towards current environmental restoration projects, with the rest set aside for future projects. So this is unsettling news when environmental concerns are top of mind for so many people, especially here in California. What are your thoughts, Matthew? Yes, it doesn't show particular concern for the land or or the environment or indeed the climate when the climate is changing so radically. And choosing a site in Mendocino, which is quite vast and remote and there's lots of land to work with. So choosing a site which um, has a stream and has wetlands, which are completely vital to California's environment right now, seems a little arrogant and um, inconsiderate. So why do you think they chose this site in particular? I think because they thought they could. They bypassed all regulations and all cooperation with the authorities and just thought they could get away with it. But they have not. Uh, Some have complained that it's a very small fine for a winery which is owned by a venture capitalist. Nevertheless, it does send out a signal that you can't just mess around with the land and that we really need to work with it. Well, might be pennies for them, but hopefully it does send that signal. Next in the news is the topic of blue wine. Katie, what is your opinion of blue wine? So when I think of blue wine, I think of the kind of bluish hue that a young wine can have. Well, that's not what we're talking about. We're talking about wine that is literally blue, like blue carousel. Blue? I didn't even drink that in college. Well, it's a very new phenomenon, so um, you wouldn't have been drinking that in college. It's just the last few years that it's emerged. I don't quite understand the trend, but there is one. And it attracts controversy because um, producers of blue wine, which include Vindigo and Gick, claim that the blue colour comes from the anthocyanins present in the skins of grapes. And that's what you were talking about, that red wines can sometimes have a blue or purple tint to them. Mm-hmm. But... If blue wine were a natural phenomenon, it would have been made for centuries, but it's a very recent development. Anyway, 
The Corsican authorities have launched an investigation into a brand of blue wine called Imagine, spelt I-M-A-J-Y-N-E. That sounds authentic, doesn't it? Indeed. Made by Domaine Pozzo di Mastri. And this is made from Vermentino grapes, which aren't even uh, black grapes. And they claim the blue colour occurs naturally due to, quote, the unique soil and know-how. Ah, know-how, keyword. And exposure to, quote, natural minerals, herbs, and seaweed. Herbs for our American listeners. The grapes being rinsed with seawater and the finished bottles stored in the sea. However, scientists earlier this year studied both Imagine and Vindigo and found evidence of E133, a food colouring additive, surprise, surprise, also called Brilliant Blue. Sylvain Milanini, the CEO of Pozzo di Mastri, said the brand did not use E133, but the colouring came from, quote, mineral salt, which both stabilises and changes the colour. Convinced, Katie? Hardly. We were here in California for the fires that hit at the end of the 2017 harvest, and it looks like the market is now having to deal with the consequences of those fires. Sonoma-based Westside Winery is suing SMT Acquisitions, a distributor from Long Island in New York, because they refused to accept nearly 5,000 cases of the winery's Noble Tree brand, as they said the grapes used to make the wine had been exposed to smoke from the wildfires. Westside Winery said, in contrast, the grapes had been harvested and the wines, quote, in indoor storage tanks before the wildfire. They're suing SMT acquisitions for $400,000. So I've heard a lot about smoke taint discussed uh, with winemakers, with viticulturists, but this is the first time that it's really come down to the distributor level. So do you think this is kind of the first of many cases that are going to come up, Matthew? Could be. We'll have to look out. Uh, these are the first red wines coming out from the 2017 vintage. However, most of the grapes had been harvested before the fires um, affected California at the end of 2017. In Napa, 90% of the grapes had been harvested. And those that hadn't been harvested, a lot of the wineries either rejected the grapes or have been very careful to monitor exactly um, how the wines taste and whether they've got enough quality. And so hopefully um, smoke taint won't filter through to the market. Obviously, people are going to be very um, wary of what exactly the 2017 wines taste like. Well, I do fear that as it filters through the supply chain, you find individuals who are less and less educated about the topic. I know even for winemakers and for viticulturists, it's really a challenge to understand what sort of effect smoke taint has. There's been tons of trials going on. But once you get to the distributor level, there's a lot of people who aren't that knowledgeable. And then it will just go by word of mouth all the way to the consumer. Yeah, and I, I've had a lot of consumers come here to California and ask about the fires and the effect of them and how that's going to change the taste of wine. So it becomes kind of word of mouth in a bad way. So it's really important for the California wine industry to ensure that there's no actual evidence of smoke tasting the wines. To be continued. And now for our wine of the week, which is Katie. Clos de Chêne or Serrier, Cahors, 2011. Mm, this is tasty stuff. And Katie actually brought this back from the region after visiting there at the end of last year. And you actually brought back two versions of this wine, one aged in oak and one not. And this is the one that isn't. We were, we were I have to admit, supposed to taste them side by side. But I accidentally, on purpose, opened the oak one quite a while ago. 
And then, well, I thought I may as well open up this one this week, seeing as we can't taste them side by side. However, although we didn't end up tasting them side by side, the differences are quite apparent. This one is so fresh and pure and fruity, even though it comes from 2011. And I think uh, not using oak just allows that fruit to really shine through. So it's aged for six months in cement, and another eight in one big tank. I got that information from a Dutch website because there's not too much about this wine available. Maybe you have some more accurate information, Katie. Well, yes, the wine is not distributed in the US, and so that's why I smuggled it back. And it was two wines from the same producer in my small case. So kind of shows how much I, I appreciated this producer. But sounds about right. And I could dig up my notes, but I'm not going to at this point. Um, I will say that this kind of reflected what a lot of the younger generation uh, is trying to do in Kaur. So the wines that we tasted, we had a lot with that kind of oak influence, that more traditional style, but there are many producers now making the more modern style, as they say, focusing on concrete, large foudre, so that it brings the fruit character more to the forefront than historically uh, Kaur wines are known for, which are a bit rustic, very high in tannin, etc. So where exactly is Kaur? So it's southwest France, and this is now, it's a new region uh, called Occitanie, and that's kind of a new designation, but the AOC of Kaur is uh, famous for Malbec, that is the most planted grape variety, and for the red wines, it can also have a little bit of Tanat blended in, but for the most part, Malbec, and it's very different from South American Malbec, which tends to be more fruity, uh, kind of plush. These wines are a lot more, as I said, rustic, kind of more restrained fruit, intended to have, a, you know, before this sort of new style came out, uh, a lot of oak influence. Yeah, and what's uh, really cool about Cahors is that it's been influenced by Argentina, so it's kind of the new world influencing the old world, and Cahors really making a, a comeback inspired by Argentinian Malbec. And also that they're great with food. And you really have to travel to southwest France if you haven't. The region of Caor is extraordinary when it comes to gastronomy. I ate foie gras with every meal and don't regret a single bite of it. So if you're based in California, you're going to have to visit this region because unfortunately foie gras is currently illegal in California. Again. Which is ridiculous when you consider the processed food available in supermarkets. But go there for the wine and the food. Cheers to that. <laughs> And that's it for this week's Wind Up Weekly. I'm Matthew Gone. I'm Katie Canfield. Join us next week for another Wind Up. Until next time. <laughs>